All right, so who can tell me what our theme has been so far this month? Say it louder. God of the harvest. Does anybody know where it's been found? We've been preaching out of. Oh, he got ahead of me. Did anyone see it? Huh? Matthew 9. Matthew 9. There you go. Matthew 9, 36 through 38. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. Now, when Isaac first shared this with me and asked me to preach, I read over the verse and I prayed and said, God, what do I want to preach on? And he said, preach that they are sheep without a shepherd. I was like, okay. You know, what, is, what, is that, what does that mean? Why did Jesus say that specifically, that we are sheep without a shepherd? Now, in the culture they were in, he was talking to shepherds and harvesters and planters and people who understood the reference. But today that kind of gets lost to us because we don't really understand it. However, Jesus mentions it several times uh, in the Bible. He refers to himself as the good shepherd. Uh, the first one he does is in John 10, 11. It reads, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. And then reading on in verse 14 through 16, I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. Just as my father knows me and I know the father, so I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep too that are not in the sheepfold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice and there will be a flock with one shepherd. And one of my favorite parables Jesus teaches is actually about uh, the lost sheep. Uh, it is found in Matthew 18, 12 through 14. He says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go out and search for the one that is lost? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he will rejoice over more over the 99 that didn't want away. In the same way, it's not my heavenly father's will that even one of these little sheep should perish. I think there's a common theme, especially in the New Testament, when Jesus talks about being sheep without a shepherd, that he doesn't want us to be lost sheep. You know, so oftentimes we go through life and we feel like we're just kind of wandering. We feel lost. But I'm here to tell you tonight that Jesus will find you wherever you are. So I'm going to pray and then I'm going to share my testimony with you guys. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight feeling hopeful knowing that you will find us no matter where we are. You will meet us in this place, and you will bless our lives, and you will be happy and rejoice when you bring us into the sheepfold, Lord. I pray over anything that would hinder the preaching and the receiving of the word of the Lord. I command them to be silent and still. I pray you bless our time today, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So, one of the things that especially when I read parables, I try to figure out how do they apply in today's life. You know, so often most of the parables teaches were, were metaphors, and he's trying to teach us a very spiritual lesson. And when I hear the parable of the lost sheep, I often think about things that have happened in my life. For instance, when I was 17, a couple years older than you guys, I was getting ready to graduate high school, and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with my life. So I did a little bit of praying, I talked to some people, and I decided I wanted to join the military. I think that's a pretty good way to start life, you know. Go through, get some on-the-job experience. They pay for school. You go in, get a pension. Yeah? I'll get there. <laughs> uh, so I began the enrollment of enlistment um, in the spring of my 17th year. 
Uh, went into a recruiter's office and was like, hey, I'm thinking about joining. Let's get the paperwork rolling. Went through the whole background process and all of that. And he says, all right, you're good. I took the ASVAB, which is a test to see how smart you are. And they can do that on a test, apparently. So I took the test, and I got everything done. They said, all right, we're going to take you down to Fort Meade, which is in Maryland. And you're going to go through a physical, get all that kind of stuff done. And then if they say you're good, you'll enlist. And I said, all right, cool. So we go down to Fort Meade, spend the night uh, in a hotel overnight there, talk to some other guys, wake up in the morning super, super early, and we begin to go through the process of going through medical exams, going through tests to make sure we're fit for duty. And we're in this giant room with a bunch of guys. They have us do all these um, exercises to make sure we can bend and do all the things they would need us to do in the military. And the doctor there kind of looks at me and says, I think you'd do well here, but I want to talk to you in my office. And I said, okay, a little weird, but let's do it. So I go into his office with him, and he says, I think you'd be really good for this. You're really, really smart. You've passed with flying colors. You're tall. You're strong. You'd be really good for this. However, I'm a little concerned about your back. And as you guys can see, I do have a little bit of a hunchback. Uh, that comes from playing too many video games, so don't play a lot of video games growing up. And when I grew, I grew so fast that the bone and the muscles in my back grew uh, at different speeds. The bones grew faster, the muscles grew slow, so it pulled my back down. So between that and the bad posture of video games, it kind of gave me a bad back, and he was a little concerned about it. I said, okay, so is it going to inhibit me? He's like, no, it's not going to inhibit you, I don't think. You just have to go get some x-rays and go through a medical board and make sure that they think you're fit for duty. I said, okay, cool. So that whole process takes probably four or five months. Uh, you got to go through three different medical boards before it comes back to him. And every time they went through a medical board, I just remember sitting there praying and saying, all right, God, if this is your will, if you want me to join the military, if you want me to do this as a career, then let me pass these, through these tests with no problems. So the first one comes through, and I'm like, all right, cool. Second one goes through, third one. And then I finally go to the final doctor, and he goes, mm, yeah, I'll let you sign. <sighs> oh, thank you, Lord. So I signed my contract, um, get ready to ship out, or get a date to ship out, and I have about eight months before I leave. So I use that time I go through, I work on getting in shape, uh, and at the time I was dating uh, my high school sweetheart, and we made the bright, idea, uh, bright decision to get engaged at 17. I'm telling you right now, that's not a good idea, don't go out and do that. <laughs> so we got engaged, she was going to go to college, I was going to go through the military, and by the end of it we were going to meet up and get married. So that happens over the course of six months. And I say goodbye to all my friends, I say goodbye to my parents, I get rid of pretty much everything I own in order to ship out, because I knew I wasn't going to be able to take it with me. So I get there the night before, my parents come down, my sister comes down, we all say goodbyes, we're all crying, snot and tears, it's really emotional. It's a lot of fun, and then they leave, and as soon as they left, I just remember feeling super nervous, super anxious about it. I was like, all right, it's finally here, it's happening, it's been almost a year-long journey to get here, but it's finally here, I'm so excited. Don't sleep at all that night. Wake up the next morning. We go to Fort Meade to ship out. I remember it was September 11th, 2013, and we get there at 5.30 in the morning. We go through all these processes. They make us do almost every single physical test again, and the doctor comes up to me and says, I remember you. And he just kind of gives me like a weird look and does a circle around me and then walks away. I'm like, that was either good or really, really bad. So I go through the whole process, and about 3.30 in the afternoon, uh, right before we ship out, he calls me into his office, and he goes, so I looked over your medical files again, and I don't remember seeing you back then, but now that I look at you now, and I see your back, I really shouldn't have signed. 
allowing you to join the military, and I'm sorry to tell you this, but I'm not going to let you ship out. I'm going to medically discharge you right here. And I'm like, I remember when he told me that, you know, in the moment, I was like, okay, yeah, I, I understand, you know, thank you for your time. And I went out back to the cafeteria, and I remember sitting on the back wall, and I just fell on the ground, and I just started bawling. I was so brokenhearted, and I felt worthless, and like, I wasn't good enough. And then I remember getting really, really angry. And I remember praying, I'm like, God, why would you do this to me? Why would you allow me to go through this long process, allow everything to go right, just to get me to the point where I'm about to step through the door and just slam it in my face. And I got so angry. I'm like, do you even love me, Lord? How could, if you love me, how could you do this to me? So I called my dad. I tell him, hey, I can't ship out. I need you to come pick me up. And I remember him saying, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry, Luke. And I, when he said that, I just felt an overwhelming amount of shame just hit me like a punch to the chest. It was just, oh, I'm not good enough. I don't know what they think, you know. How am I going to face my parents? How am I going to face my friends after I said goodbye to everybody? I mean, how am I going to face the girl I'm dating at the time and tell her, hey, I mean, all of our plans just went out the window. I don't know what we're going to do. So I go home, and over the course of the next six months or so, it just feels like everything I try to do just goes wrong. You know, we ended up breaking up. I can't hold down a job. It just, it just everything that I try to do just seems to fail, and I just keep getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And I finally remember at the one point, I just finally said, all right, God, you don't love me. You don't care. Why should I even follow and serve you? And I remember at that point, I basically stopped going to church. Um, I finally decided, okay, if I'm not going to go in the military and have them pay for school, I need to do it myself. So I got a job as a plumber, started going through school. And when I started going through school, I met this group of people uh, who were, they weren't Christians, but they were good people. So I started hanging out with them. And that was really my first introduction to some of the worldly things I haven't been exposed to. Some of the things you probably were exposed to in, in high school, but I was homeschooled, so I had never really seen them before. Um, I started dating another girl who was very, let's just say she wasn't a good influence on me. Uh, we started dating for about a year and a half, uh, and that's kind of when some of the sin in my life really started taking hold. Uh, I remember getting really addicted to sex, to porn, uh, I was able to start drinking, so I started drinking, not heavily, but enough that I was never fully sober. That went on for about a year, uh, and then we went on a trip, and my parents hated this girl. My parents hated her, my friends hated her, they all knew she was a bad influence on me. And while we were away, my parents took some of the elders, went into my room, and they prayed, God, open his eyes, let him know that this path he's going down is not a good path, that it's going to end up destroying him. And just keep, they wanted us, they wanted discord in our relationship, they wanted us to end it so that I could be free to follow the Lord and follow things that he wanted me to. And I remember they prayed that on a Saturday afternoon, and we got home on a Monday morning, and it was me and her in the car, and I pulled into the driveway, and I just, I don't know what came over me, but I just pulled in the driveway and I just sat there. I just thought for a minute, and I just looked over her and said, you know, I think I'm done with this relationship. No cause for it. Didn't even know they had prayed for me, but I realize now that that was God intervening and protecting me through my parents, something I'm very, very thankful for. Oh, it was super awkward because her parents were still like three hours away. So she's sitting out there waiting for her parents to come get her. And I'm just like, I can't go out there and face her now. That was really weird. Uh, but they finally come pick her up, bring her home. And at the time, I remember thinking, all right, this is a really, really good decision. I, I feel good about this. You know, I didn't know why. And then that feeling lasted for 
maybe two weeks, and then I just felt an overwhelming amount of just loneliness hit me. I'm like, you know, I've been using or hanging out with this girl and this group of friends and been using them basically as a crutch to run away from everything that I was, or using them as a crutch instead of running from everything that I've been going through. Uh, I got a job at a local bar, uh, and I knew when I got hired, because one of the interview questions he asked me is like, do you like the party? I'm like, not really my speed. He's like, well, a lot of people in the back like the party. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. I'll just ignore it. So we started, started working there. I was still going to school. I was getting close to finishing, getting my associates. And uh, these people, I mean, when they say they party, they partied a lot. Uh, they always invited me out. And I was like, no, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. But I remember one night, uh, it was New Year's Eve. Uh, it was just a long night. We had two people just walk out in the middle of the shift. It was, it was just a terrible night. We didn't get up getting out until like 2 o'clock in the morning. And one of the guys was like, hey, man, it's been a long night. Do you want to come over and chill out with us for a little while and just kind of relax? And I'm like, sure, why not? You know, what could go wrong? So we go over there, we hang out. And that was the first time I was introduced to hard drugs. He's like, hey, man, we got some, we got, they had weed, they had some other things there. Uh, he's like, hey, man, do you want to just chill out and mellow out? I'm like, you know, why not? I got nothing to lose. Can't hurt, right? Just one time. So I did it. And I remember for the first about 20 minutes, I was just super, super anxious about it. Because, you know, oh, we're going to get caught. We're going to get in trouble. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And then it finally mellowed out. And I remember thinking, this isn't so bad. Why have I been running this for my entire life? Why haven't I done this earlier? And as soon as I had that thought, I heard just a small voice in the back of my head say, you still know this is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. You need to leave. And I remember saying, ah, nah, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Uh, go through the night, nothing happened. But that was really my first introduction. And I remember it was just, it was, it was nice. I mean, for, you know, three hours, I completely forgot about all my problems. I didn't feel sad. I didn't feel depressed. I didn't feel helpless. So it really began my, my downward spiral. Um, and things from there just kept going downhill, downhill, downhill. Uh, I got introduced to harder drugs. I met a gentleman who was very, very charismatic. Uh, and I didn't know at the time, but he was actually trying to get me to join a cult that he was part of. Uh, joined him for, we probably hung out for about a year until I realized what was going on, and I left. And at the end of that time, I was about 23, 24, and I realized, man, I can't keep doing this. You know, I'm, I'm using drugs and, and porn and sex to try to give purpose to my life, and it wasn't working. So I decide, okay, I need to go somewhere. I'm going to give God a try again. You know, it's been seven years at that point. All right, let me give, let me give God a try again. So I decide I'm going to go to Liberty University, which is a really big Christian school down in Lynchburg, Virginia. And I go down there. I, I get, get ready. I'm like, all right, yeah, I'm going to go down there. I'm going to go to church every week. I'm going to go to church on Wednesday nights. I'm going to go to their convocations, and I'm going to really make an effort. So I moved down there, I moved into my apartment all on my own, and I did it for about two weeks. And then I, I just remember thinking, you know, I was trying to find purpose through God without actually finding a relationship with God. And it just, it didn't fill me, and I'm like, well, if I, you know, I'm trying, trying, but nothing's working, I might as well just go back to my old habits. So I did. And I continued going through my old habits for the whole, almost the entire three years I was down there. And it just kept getting worse and worse. And I remember uh, last winter uh, was the first time I'd actually had thoughts of suicide. That's how bad it got. I got to the point where I was, I was sitting in my room in a dark, dark, dark in my room after work one night. I'm just thinking, you know, what's the point of all this? 
You know, if all this stuff that is supposed to, you know, make you happy and, you know, let you forget and bring you joy, it's not working anymore. What am I supposed to do? Well, I go through that, and then the next year is when COVID hits. And when COVID hits, it just, it gets worse. I finally work up the courage to tell my parents, and I go see uh, a therapist for a little while, get on antidepressants, and it kind of worked. But there was still just something that was just lacking in my life, and I didn't feel fulfilled, and I just had this empty hole that was just a spiraling chaos of just anger and depression and anxiety, and it just wouldn't leave me. And I remember my lowest point was on my birthday of this year, when I turned 27. I remember sitting in my room and thinking, you know, nothing has changed. I've been here for three years, and nothing has changed. Why, why, why don't I just end it right now? And I remember I got very close. I had a gun in my closet. I got very close to pulling it out. But I remember sitting there, and I just started praying. I'm like, God, what am I supposed to do? You know, by this age, you were in the process of beginning a ministry. You know, getting close to it. And I was like, I just don't see that happening for myself. And I remember I had two thoughts that day when I was thinking about that. I was like, you're never going to be good enough of anything other than this. And it just, it broke me down, and it really hurt. And I remember thinking to myself, all right, God's ministry ended at 33. Jesus' ministry ended at 33. I'm going to give myself till 33, and I'm really going to try and pursue you, God, until 33. And if things don't get better by then, then I'm just going to do it. And I remember as soon as I said that, I heard... It wasn't an audible voice, but it was the strongest time I've ever heard God speak to me. He said, all right, you're going to give me six years to the end of your ministry. Let me show you what I can do with you in six years. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm game for anything. Something has to change. So at that time, I dropped out of school because I just wasn't feeling it. I was too depressed. And my dad's like, well, you can't move back home because I'm not going to support you. We have, we have our niece here. Uh, she's three years old. I love her to death. But you can't move in back here with her and her, parent, her mom. And I'm like, okay. So I started looking for a job, and, you know, I was kind of reaching out to different people. Hey, do you have anything available? Because I went to school for IT, but it wasn't really what I wanted to do. So one afternoon, my dad was like, why don't you try going out to Butte? I was like, okay. Uh, I mean, I got family out there. What, what could go wrong? So I applied to a couple jobs. Uh, I got one lady call me. She's like, hey, you're from Maryland, but do you want to actually come out to Butte and work? I'm like, I'd be up for it. I mean, if you really want to interview me, I'll schedule time to come out there. And she's like, yeah, why don't we do that? So I had three interviews lined up when I came out here over the 4th of July. And that was the first time I came to this church, and I met Caitlin and Isaac and everybody here. And I remember when I walked in on Sunday morning, my first thought was, okay, I can't let them see how, just how broken I am. You know, I, I want to give them this persona that I'm put together, you know, I'm educated, that uh, I'm worth being a friend to. And, it, I mean, they just, they probably saw right through it, but I remember them just being so open and welcome. And I'm like, wow, is this really what you know, Christians are supposed to be like. Is this, they're supposed to accept lost, broken people for who they are. And I remember it really affected me. I was like, I, I kind of want to come out here, Lord. I prayed that prayer, and he's like, I got you, don't worry. So I went into my first interview, and it didn't go so well, and I was kind of discouraged about it. I was like, oh, man, this is terrible. What am I going to do? And I went into my second interview at the post office, and I sat down in the chair, and he's like, this is basically just a formality. You're hired. When do you want to start? I'm like, uh, okay, that's awesome. I mean, that in itself is a miracle. And God's like, he's like, you can be out here on the first, first of August. And I'm like, sure, I can make that work. So I go back to Lynchburg, I pack up my stuff, and I was going to wait and leave and come straight to Butte. My dad's like, why don't you come home for a week and a half? Just come out, chill with us, you know, come to a couple services. And I'm like, sure, can't help. I can say goodbye to some of my friends from high school. 
So I ended up going home, and the first Sunday I was home, uh, this gentleman named Dave, who is he's an ex-cop, uh, he's a great man of God, he's a deliverance minister, he comes up to me and says, hey, I hear you're going out to be, you're going to start a new life. Do you want to go through deliverance? And I'm like, eh, I mean, I guess. I had tried to do it before, and it didn't really stick. I had gone through a couple of prayer appointments, and, you know, nothing really changed. And he's like, I really think it's going to help you. And I'm like, okay, sure, why not? It can't hurt. So I go through the week, I say goodbye to all my friends, I kind of get some things ready, and I got there on Sunday morning, and I was, I mean, my stomach was a knot. I was so anxious and nervous, and it wasn't even Monday yet. And he's like, hey, are we still on for tomorrow? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I guess I'll be here. He's like, well, you better, because I'll come put you in handcuffs, and I'll make you be here. <laughs> so Monday morning comes around, I have to drop off my car to get some work done, and my mom drops me off at the church. And it was uh, Dave and then another lady named Christy who was there for the, my deliverance mini. And when I walked in, she came up to me and she gave me a hug and she said, I had a vision of you this morning. And I said, okay, what about? And she said, I saw a vision of you in God. I saw Jesus behind you with his arms open wide. And I saw you with your back to him, just with your arms crossed. And I was like, okay, that kind of makes sense. It's a little painful, but it makes sense. So she, they sat me down, and we started going through the process. And the first thing they did was, all right, is there any unforgiveness in your life? And I'm like, eh, maybe a little. And she looks at me and says, have you forgiven God yet? And I'm like, do I have to? He's like, well, are you still angry with him? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, then yes, you need to forgive him. So we go through that. I mean, I forgive, I forgive God. I forgave myself. So many other people. Uh, they lead me through uh, getting rid of soul ties. And then they actually go through the deliverance ministry. And this whole process takes about four hours to go through. And I was expecting maybe, maybe an hour, maybe two. But, I mean, during the process, it was the first time the Bible and God actually came alive for me. And everything in it kind of came alive for me. You know, we talk about spiritual warfare. And when you go through deliverance, they actually talk to some of the demons that are oppressing you and inside of you. And, you know, my, the one I remember the most was... It looked like a mix between a spider and a scorpion that was just wrapped around me and had its claws and hooks in me and was just basically one of the biggest reasons that I had felt like the way I felt. And the Lord blessed me with a vision that he, I saw a silver sword just cut it off of my back and I saw an angel just pick it up. And when I saw him pick it up, what felt just so big and heavy and overwhelming, I mean, was, was this big? I mean, it looked like a normal scorpion. He just threw it into a pit and I was like, well, okay. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't very big. I just remember thinking, oh, wow, it's tinier than I thought. How did I let that affect me? And another thing that went through was they said, you know, where's God right now? And I had my eyes closed, and the entity they were talking to said, he's right next to us. So I look over, and with my eyes closed, I remember so vividly seeing the face of Jesus. And I just remember seeing his eyes just so full of love and so full of longing and wanting for me. And I'm just like, okay, I'm ready to surrender. God, you just, it's all yours now. So he did that. He set me free. I mean, when I walked into there, I was still addicted to drugs, sex, porn. I was angry, depressed, anxious, and I walked out, and I had none of it. It was all gone. And it was, I remember walking out and just being like, this is awesome. This is what I want. And I remember after that, the whole imagery and the idea of Jesus being the good shepherd and wanting to find his lost sheep just really stuck with me. Um, I realized that I was a sheep who had gotten out of the sheep pen and was lost in the wilderness. And that the entire time I was running away, Jesus was that shepherd who was trying to come and find me. And it, it, just, it just really touched me. Um, 
You know, it took me 10 years to finally sit down and accept, all right, God, I'll let you find me. I'll stop running. And I did it, and it was amazing. So I share all that, and I want to give you guys a little bit of an imagery of understanding sheep and why he makes this reference. Um, I'm going to give you some interesting facts about sheep. One, did you know that sheep have no sense of direction at all? At all. Uh, they will, and they will always follow the sheep that is leading them. So if you have one sheep who's going off a cliff, and the rest of the sheep are following them, and, and there they all go. <laughs> um, sheep are defenseless. They have no natural defenses at all, other than kicking with their back legs and running away, hopefully not off a cliff, they're completely defenseless without a shepherd. And if a sheep ends up on its back, like a puppy dog with its legs up in the air, they can't get up. They're basically a giant fluffy turtle. Um, they're weak. They're not meant to carry burdens. Uh, anything heavier than the wool they carry on them will crush them. In fact, that's one of the main reasons why shepherds will shear them so the wool doesn't bog them down. Um, they're easily frightened. Uh, they, because they can't defend themselves, uh, and they will settle for lesser things. For instance, if a sheep is thirsty and it finds a muddy puddle in front of it, it will drink that muddy puddle, even though maybe 20 feet away there's a clear stream. They settle for the lesser things. And lastly, sheep are very valuable to shepherds. They have wool, they have meat, and that's how they make their living. And as I was thinking, I was reading all these lists of some of the qualities of sheep, I really thought like, wow, how does that, how much does that really transcribe to us today, both emotionally and spiritually, you know? There are times where we go through life where we just feel vulnerable, we feel exposed, we tend to settle for lesser things for that instant gratification instead of, you know, walking 20 feet for something that is better in life. Um, but of all these things, the last thing that really has been speaking to me is how valuable sheep are. You know, when Jesus makes that analogy of, I am the good shepherd and I will do anything for my sheep, he's talking about us. We are the sheep to God. He will go out and do anything to find us. I mean, if you think about it, when God became Jesus, he left divinity behind. You know, he was up in heaven, having angels singing around him, sitting on the throne, watching the entire earth. I mean, gold, which is the most valuable thing, in the, valuable thing to humans, I mean, it's used as pavement. I mean, imagine if Butte had gold roads. Probably wouldn't be as bumpy for one. Yeah, he gave all that up to come down and to live a life as a human. You know, he went through everything we go through every day. He went through being a child, being helpless and defenseless. I mean, he was born in a manger in a barn. He didn't even have a hospital bed when he was born. Um, he went through being a child. He had brothers and sisters. I mean, he went through puberty. I mean, that was rough for me. I don't know how that was for God. <laughs> uh, he worked as a carpenter, which back then was a, it wasn't a high-end job. It was very, very thankless. It was considered a lower-end job, and he went through that. And he did it all perfectly, and he did it without sin. Uh, he loved and valued us so much that he gave up divinity to walk through life as one of us, just for us. You know, and he, not only that, but he took on one of the most painful ways a human can die at, from crucifixion. You know, he was beaten, he was whipped, he was mocked, 
he had to carry his own cross that he knew he was going to die on up a hill while they were mocking him, while they were spitting on him. You know, and then when he got up there, they nailed him to this cross. Imagine how painful that would be. Not only that, but when he was up on the cross, he experienced everything we've ever felt. Every feeling of depression, of anxiety, of loneliness, of anger, of not feeling good enough. He felt all of that. And not just yours, but everybody's. All at the same time. And for the first time in existence, he knew what it was like to lose the presence of God. He was out of his presence. He cried out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And he did all that because he wants to find his lost sheep. He wants to find every single one of us and bring us to him so we can experience the fullness of life, so we can experience what it's like to be set free. One of the, uh, my favorite psalms in scriptures is Psalms 23. And it actually has uh, the same theme of Jesus being that shepherd. So Psalms 23, 1 says, The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with your blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will live in the house of the Lord forever. See, one of the things I like about this passage is David himself was a shepherd. So he understood what all of this really, really meant. And the only real problem I have with people who quote this passage a lot is when they say, the Lord is my shepherd, I have all of this. But they don't really have that mentality. Most people, when they actually say it, they say, it would be more like, because the Lord is my shepherd, or if the Lord is my shepherd. Um, simply quoting it and reading it doesn't position us for the promise included in these passages. To get those benefits and promises, it is required that the Lord actually be your shepherd. You have to acknowledge him as a, uh, acknowledge Jesus as a shepherd, or acknowledge Jesus as my shepherd, or just being a shepherd. And when you do that, you have all the promises of, of the scripture. One is, I have all that I need. He promises us provision. He will provide for us no matter what we need in life. Whether we need a friend, whether we need a savior, a father figure, he will give us everything we need to go through life. Now, one of the things that you need to be careful of is, is yes, he will give you the things you need, but that's very different from the things that we want. You know, there are a lot of things that we want in life. You know, we all want the fast car, lots and lots of money, the good job. You know, I know you don't, Caitlin, but I, <laughs> uh, but I do. But the thing is, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah there, there you go. We'll go racing. Uh, but no, he promises things we need, not the things that we want. He will never give us more than we can handle. And he will also protect us. He lets me rest in green meadows. He promises us safety that we will be free from fear and hunger and strife and the enemies of the world that will come against us. He leads me beside the peaceful streams. He promises us peace. You know, it's, it's sheep, when they you know, go to drink, if they find a stream that's running too fast, they won't drink from it because they're too afraid. He'll give us these still, peaceful waters to drink from that will rest <laughs> restore our souls and give us just life and renewal. He promises us protection. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid. In the King James Version, it says the valley of the shadow of death. 
And reading on it says, your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. Now, God will fight for us. No matter what comes our way, God will fight for us. I mean, David, when he wrote this, understood what it means to be a shepherd to fight for your flock. I mean, at 14 years old, he took on a lion, he took on a bear, and all he had was a, a rod and a sling. And then not much time later, I mean, he took on Goliath, all by himself, with the power of God, of course. But it's a promise that no matter what comes our way, no matter what giants come our way, how much more can God protect us from than a 14-year-old boy? How much more can he do for us and protect us from, you know, the enemies of the world that will come against us? Now, at this point, as I kind of bring us to a close, you're probably thinking, all right, this is all really, really good, but what does this have to do with being an evangelist in the harvest? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you real quick. Uh, at one point in time, every single one of us has been a sheep. Some of us still are sheep, but even those of us in the church who are shepherds, myself, Isaac, Tim, we've all been sheep at one point. And what we need to understand is when we come to a point in our walk with God, yes, we are still sheep, but we need to make that transition from being sheep into becoming shepherds ourselves. Um, I mean, our, our purpose as believers is to live a life that radiates God's love and his want and desire for us. And that we need to bring others to him. I mean, in Matthew 28, 18, and 20, he gives us the Great Commission. Uh, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then again in Mark 16, 15 through 18, and he told them, go out into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved. But anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. These miraculous signs will accompany those who believe. They will cast out demons in my name. They will speak in new languages. They will be able to handle snakes with safety. And if they drink anything poisonous, it won't hurt them. They will be able to place their hands on the sick and they will be healed. Jesus has authority over the entire earth. He gives that authority and that power to us. And he wants us to go out and use that power and use that authority to be shepherds and bring other lost sheep into his flock. Now, because he gives us this power, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Now, he promises us that there will be strife, but he will always follow us. He will always protect us. He will always guide us. And it's not going to be easy. Our flesh and then sin and our sinful nature will always want to go against the word of God. But it comes to a point where we need to make that decision that I don't want to be a sheep anymore. I want to be a shepherd. I want to go into the fulfill fulfillment and the promises that he has for us. You know, God sacrificed his only son for us. One of my favorite verses in scripture is John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You know, in our calling to be like Jesus, we're supposed to lay down our life for our friends. Now, not physically. You don't have to go out and die for anyone to prove to them that you love them. But we're supposed, to die. <laughs> we're supposed to die to ourselves daily. You know, we're supposed to give up our lives as a sacrifice to follow God and follow his will. Jesus says, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. Every single one person in this room, myself included, know people who are lost. Know sheep who need to be brought into the fold. And maybe it's you. Maybe you're at the point where I just, I just feel lost. I just feel hopeless. And I just I don't know what to do anymore. And I'm here to tell you, and I promise you, that all you have to do is say, God, I'm ready to be found, and he will find you. 
He will bring you into his fold, and he will give you the promises from Psalms 23. And I want to end with a little different. I want everyone to bow their head and close their eyes. Everybody, including you. Not you. (laughs) Everyone bow your head, close your eyes. Sure, I'll do it too. I want you to really think about your life and where you're at with your walk with the Lord. I want you to really question yourself and see, do you feel lost? Do you feel like you're running from God? You're in the wilderness, and you're just waiting for that shepherd to come find you. That's how you feel. I just want you to raise your hand as a show of faith. That God, I feel lost. I want you to come find me. All right, put your hands down. Uh, can I have my leaders come forward? I'm going to give you guys about... Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're good. I'm going to give you guys about five minutes. Those of you who raised your hand saying, I feel lost. I feel like I want to be found and I don't know what to do from here. If you're one of those people, come up and talk to one of your leaders. They'll more than happy pray with you and show you and bring you to the flock. Seth, if you could play a little bit of music for me. Or wherever he is. I'm just going to give you guys about five minutes. Just really think and reflect on where you're at. And say, God, I'm ready to be found. I'm ready for, to surrender my life to you. To be in your life. I'll pray us out and then I'll give us about five minutes before we break into small groups. Heavenly Father, just thank you for tonight. Thank you for the promise of your word saying that no matter how lost we may feel, no matter how lost we may be, that for all of time, you will do whatever it takes to pursue us, to show us that you love us, to bring us into your fold and into your flock and under your protection. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who just feels lost, that they would have the courage and the boldness to step out and just say, Lord, I need you. I need you to come and rescue me. I want you to be the shepherd of my life. And I thank you for the word tonight, Lord, and I thank you for all those who are here. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.